You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you'll want to listen on to find out what she has to say about how to keep your emotions in check when you're negotiating. The Harvard program calls it going to the balcony. So you either literally or mentally take yourself off to the balcony, get some fresh air, relax, reconfigure your mindset, and uh, it's very helpful. Please stick around for this week's cracking Dumbo of the Week. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of negotiation expert Fiona McKenzie. Fiona is an accomplished management consultant and mediator with more than 20 years' experience in transformation and personal improvement projects. Fiona's key area of expertise lies in building consensus. She loves working with individuals, teams and organisations to take the apprehension out of negotiation and build better agreements. Now, what's this got to do with property, of course, we ask? Well, what we really want to find out from Fiona today is how we as property buyers can learn how to apply some of her frameworks and principles to make us better negotiators. Fiona is principal of Resolving Matters, and she works across a range of industries, helping clients with the design and management of all manner of negotiated agreements, facilitating complex workshops and delivering coaching and training programs. She's also a nationally accredited mediator and holds a Bachelor of Arts honours degree. She's a bit of a girly swat, Fiona, and an MBA, (laughs) for which she also received the university medal. So she's a bit brainy, and she's going to be able to, I know, enlighten us and give us some huge value in this chat. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Fiona. Really looking forward to today. So one of the hardest parts for property investors is negotiating. Once they've figured out what the right property is and where they want to live, etc. By this point, though, they're very emotionally invested. On the other side of the coin, you've got someone trying to sell and you've got a real estate agent in on the other side that's probably a professional negotiator. So what sort of issues do negotiators have when they start thinking about negotiating after they're actually already emotional? There are sort of three things I want to say about that. Firstly, that emotions aren't all bad. They're actually used to great effect in some ways in negotiations by professionals and individuals. Uh, But secondly, emotions can really swamp logic. Mm -hmm. So the solution to that is to be really prepared up front. So I don't really think uh, a buyer of a property needs to use a lot of energy trying to suppress the emotion. You may actually want to uh, use it um, to get some more information out of the seller or the agent, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. But you have to make sure that you're so well prepared uh, that the emotion doesn't swamp your ability to think rationally. Mm -hmm. And there's a few ways to do that. The key one... The key concept that I really wanted to introduce is something called a BATNA, which is a term that's come out of the Harvard program on negotiation, and it stands for the best alternative to a negotiated agreement, and it means it's what you compare the deal to. So if you're uh, 
buying a home and you like it and you're making a bid on it um, and you have no alternative, right? then you have a very poor batner. Yep. So your your alternative to doing that deal is poor. So you're going to be really invested in the one that you're bidding on mm-hmm. and probably pay over the market. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a strong batner, that gives you the courage to um, actually stand on your convictions about what you yeah. want to pay. So it's all about it's about understanding um, it's about understanding what the options are, but also making your um, batner your alternative to mm. that deal really, really strong so that you can go in hard on the negotiation. And at the same time, you want to make the the other party's batner bad if you can. So if you've got an agent saying, look at this great house, you want to buy it, we've had a lot of interest, um, you want to be pushing the things that uh, aren't great about that house and that, that will, go, will make that house unattractive to other people. Mm-hmm. So while you're raising your own BATNA, giving you the power to negotiate, you're trying to influence the other party to think that their BATNA is poor. The impact of that particular tactic is going to vary according to how much interest the vendor's got, right, or the agent's got. Yeah, absolutely. Because I know that a lot of buyers sort of say, oh, I've got to get a building and pest inspection, I'm going to pick the eye teeth out of that and I'm going to use all of those basically to try to leverage the price down. Yeah. And it's like, well, good luck with that because, A, if they're real deal breakers, yes, you'll be able to negotiate on some of those points. And if they're a surprise to the agent and the vendor, you'll be able to negotiate on those points. But if they're not a surprise and if loads of other buyers don't care about them, then you got Buckley's. Yeah, exactly right. You can't influence the other party's batner, but you can. So you can't change it for them, mm-hmm. but you can try and change their perspective of it. And so in that instance, you're actually in a fairly poor position unless you're raising your own batner. So mm. you need to be looking at other properties and comparing that. And that's the gold, isn't it? Because that's the defence. It comes from within yourself. Tell me if I'm wrong in interpreting this. So you're basically saying that when you go into a negotiation, you've got more control about your own side of things than the other side of things. And if you build your own defences and contingency planning effectively and also fully understanding what those options are, you're going to be less likely to put all your eggs in that one basket. Absolutely. Mm, I love it. I mean, I guess it's a good philosophy for life if you're ever going to... Mm do anything is to do your own due diligence up front, call three people or look at multiple options because if you do go into a negotiation to buy something and you haven't really checked the market out, you're pretty much useless. You know, you can't really compare and you you just have to make a call on the spot and you just go, I'll just go with it. Kind of comes down to just knowing what the market is and some alternatives. Absolutely. Someone's going to try to rip you off. You go, actually, you know what? I know the market. I've I've got three different quotes Mm. from different people. You can actually say, well, I don't really want to go ahead with this deal. Mm. So, Batna, we're going to make sure there's lots of resources in the show notes here because sure. I just love this. Okay, so you mentioned a number of different tactics or mm. approaches you can take. So, that, well, there's more around the Batna. So there are sort of, I guess, three concepts that you want to explore for yourself and also try and understand for the other party. So there's your least acceptable agreement. So that's like if you're buying, that's the absolute most I will pay and beyond that, that's when my Batna comes into play. And then... Your most desirable outcome is, as the buyer, you know, what's the lowest I could get for this? And that might be your starting pitch. And the other party will also have their most desirable outcome and their BATNA mm. and uh, their least acceptable agreement. And so if that's the seller, um, their least acceptable agreement is, you know, 
the, le the least amount they would yep. take before they'd go looking for another buyer. And so when you take those things into account, and I'm sitting here with my fingers doing a little <laughs> jigsaw thing. Uh, it's like a slide. Seesaw. <laughs> there's a zone of possible agreement and you will only agree if you're within that zone where there's an overlap yep. between your, you know, the most you will pay and the least they will accept or the other way around. And so I think a lot of people think about their own least acceptable agreement without putting as much thought into their BATNA, their alternatives, mm. but not as many people think about the other parties. Factors, and that can be really important. And the more you find out about their motivations will help you to, to be able to negotiate. Quite often what I see, people go into auction, for instance, and they're not thinking about their least acceptable agreement. They're actually thinking about their most desirable outcome yes. and they really haven't considered there's one bookend, two bookend, and in the middle is your zone of agreement. That's and it. so they go in mm. with only one bookend. Mm. I'm going to continue this analogy. So it's like, oh, the book's full off the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> but, so that really puts a negotiator, and, and effectively an auction is a negotiation of types. Yes. But I guess even in the actual uh, negotiation phase, if you're negotiating on a price with an agent and it's private treaty, for instance, and the agent starts throwing in these, you know, mythical other buyers and, and creating that sense of urgency or FOMO or, you know, you're going to miss out on this, if they haven't actually got that, it's, it's anchoring, isn't it, really? It is, it is. Yeah. Anchoring in, you know, strict negotiation theory, anchoring is a slightly different concept and that's yeah. about who puts the figure out first. Ah, yeah. But you're anchoring, in a sense, in your own mind once you're setting or, or agreeing those three concepts with yourself. Mm. With auctions, you've, you've got to kind of go there with multiple limits, right? You go there with a desired outcome, I'd love to get this place for a million, but if we have to, the maximum we want to pay is say 1.1 and then your brain kicks in and goes look I've actually got a batna after 1.1 I've got other options there's no point me going more than that is that kind of the yeah, thought right. process you that's would have right. and I, I think what's important here though is you've got to get that batna before you go to yeah, auction not to in auction. the middle of the auction because that's you, when the, the irrational brain completely and utterly overrides the rational that's right that's and I guess that's what I started with the emotions are going to be there don't put the energy into suppressing them put your energy into having tools so that they don't matter. Mm. So the emotions are controlled uh, because you've already decided the maximum that you will bid and when you hit that point, what your alternatives are. And the better the alternatives are, the more confident you are to stop at that point and not get carried away with the emotion. I love it. So this is so all about the elephant. You know, the, oh. the metaphor for the, the elephant is a metaphor for our mm. subconscious mind, which... Well, a lot of psychologists say governs really 80% of what we do. And because it's subconscious, we've got no idea it's taking us in various directions. In fact, I was listening to a podcast yesterday where it was there was a study quoted saying 95% of what we do is governed by our subconscious. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? Mm. Really, really, mm. really something to stop and think about. And so these are fabulous techniques and tactics to actually try to master. It's elephant riding tactics. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's yeah. what we're, we're teaching here or you're teaching here. So more, tell us more. Well, I'll, I'll just I'll give you another um, example. It's not property, but if you think about buying on eBay, um, the way that I would do it is work out what is the point at which I will be glad that I've bought it and what is the point yep. at which I feel I've paid too mm. much, the buyer's remorse, and that's the amount that you put in and then you go away and you don't think about it until you get the email. 
yep. because you've allowed yourself to put in your most desirable or your least acceptable outcome in terms of a low price, if it goes beyond that, you don't get that buyer's remorse. Mm. Yeah. I always say to a client, you know, when they're going through that auction process is if you're going to go home disappointed and wish you bought it. Yeah. Because everyone's going to want to feel like they win in a negotiation. They're always going to want to yeah. feel like they got a good price. And then there's going to be a price where they go, oh, I'm disappointed. I wish I got it for cheaper, but I'm still happy I've got it. And then there'll be a price where I'm disappointed I didn't get it and I'm happy I didn't get it because yes. it's just went to a crazy level. And I think people naturally want to get it for a good price, but it's actually okay to get it for a price that you're not actually happy with, but you still get the asset sometimes because it's, it still means you get it. We take our clients through a very rigorous process and a very structured way of helping them work out what their least acceptable outcome is mm. before we enter any negotiations. So it's interesting without knowing the theory behind this mm. that we've we've naturally gone this way. So I'm very excited about that. And it's interesting, we've actually, we survey our clients um, and we have done since the beginning of 2015 and obviously not everyone responds, but of the, our respondents, 74% say they're very comfortable with the price they've paid and 26% are are comfortable. So that means we've got 100% of our clients comfortable or very comfortable with the price they paid in what largely was a booming market. And that is because of this process that we went through. So when you walk away, they're not so disappointed. You know, they're not kicking themselves for not buying something because they've really gone through this process and pressure tested their limits Mm -hmm. before we entered. So I'm very excited to hear mm. there's actually oh, a name good. for that. There so, okay. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that we just touched on a little bit is the winner's curse. So yeah. um, whoever wins an auction, in theory, has paid more than anyone else thought that asset was worth. Mm. So any auction winner has paid too much, mm. uh, yeah. which is a bit mind-blowing when you think about it. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about this because... I've always found this quite fascinating around bank valuations. You know, the, the banks often say, oh, we'll take the auction price as evidence of market value. And I'll go, well, actually, no, because that's only one person prepared to pay that yeah, price. Exactly. So that's one aspect to that. But the other side of that is also, and I've had this happen many, many times, because we take our clients through this least acceptable outcome process, right, this battening process, they know how far they're prepared to go before they're in that discomfort place and they say, no, I will not pay that price. So we've already gone through that exercise. We're, we're up against people who haven't, who quite often pull up before they get to that point, that if they'd actually thought that through, they would have had a higher and probably outbid us, but- they didn't because they'd never actually had gone through this process. And I've had a number of times uh, in the last 12 months even where I've had agents come to me and say, would your client consider actually not buying the property? <laughs> because the underbidders, in one case two underbidders, have said we really regret not going for hire. Mm. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really powerful negotiation tool and can help you buy something cheaper. Mm, Absolutely. When you do overpay through a negotiation and you lose, do you lose a lot of the value out of what you actually bought? For example, if you have gone through a process and you wanted to buy something for 1.2 and you have paid 1.3 because you've overpaid, how does losing a negotiation affect the value you get out of something? As in if you pay too much, like it, winner's curse if you actually have buyer's remorse. Is that what you're talking? Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, let's say you go for a nice dinner or a dinner and you pay a lot of money for it, but it's actually not that nice. 
because <laughs> you paid a lot of money for it and you haven't, you've lost all the experience or all the value out of, you know, and I guess that's probably the big, you know, negative of losing a negotiation because you've, you still own the property, but you paid a lot of money for it and you're not, you know, you don't feel good about it. And mm. does that play out a lot in negotiations when you haven't won in yourself mentally? Does actually you lose a lot of the value in things? I think it's different when it's um, something really personal. So with a home that you're going to live in and you imagined yourself there with your family and those things, uh, and I had massive buyer's remorse with my house <laughs> that Veronica bought. Oh, my uh, God. Because... <laughs> Because um, once all the furniture was gone, it was clear how much work mm. was needed. But my house is awesome and I love it. I love it. Yeah. Your house is full so of possibility. My house is Yeah, full and of it's very unique. Yeah. Mm. In a good way. Uh, <laughs> you know, like with a business negotiation, a lot of uh, those negotiations are with long-term client-supplier relationships, for instance, and actually um, – goading the uh, other party into getting the absolute best deal is not the best thing. Mm. Um, I heard a story just recently from a guy called Brian Tracy. He's written a book called Negotiation. Uh, That's a very funnily enough, funnily enough. <laughs> and he had a deal. He had a deal with a publisher for this book and, you know, they had come to a certain agreement and he had another few books in the pipeline. And heard from a mate who had, you know, driven such a hard, hard bargain with this publisher on the book that Brian went back to the publisher and said, well, why did you give them such a great deal when I didn't have that? And they said, well, we've got the deal on the book and it's sitting in the top drawer for three years and we're not prepared to publish it. Mm. So you can, you if you're negotiating uh where it's a one-off, like buying a property, that's quite different to an ongoing relationship, like for ha- perhaps leasing, mm. but in other business instances. And they're quite different approaches. Um, the the yeah. negotiation th- sort of theory names are integrative negotiation and distributive negotiation. So distributive negotiation is where one person's gain is sort of at the other person's loss. Yep bit like buying a house. If the buyer gets a great deal, it's because the seller didn't get such mm, a great deal. Mm. Integrative um, negotiation is where it's not about splitting up the bits of the pie, it's trying to make the pie bigger. Mm. Uh, and you do that through understanding the other party's um, interests and motivations, not just what they're telling you but what's happening beneath the surface. And that can happen in a buying situation too. With property, like for instance, say that vendor has purchased and they might have a standard six-week settlement on the contract, but in reality they're they're feeling very vulnerable because they've got to settle in three weeks and the Mm. buyer can actually settle in three weeks and and it's about understanding the terms that are involved or, you know, negotiating pieces of furniture or bits of, you know, the garden or whatever. Um, So it it can come into, but that is quite interesting too because what I see that there's there's a lot of ego with some people in the way that they negotiate is is take no prisoners and then it becomes about the win rather than the actual outcome, doesn't it? And it's not always the best deal. Mm. Um, You know, that that used to be the old way of negotiation, the Don, the Donald Trump sort of way, and and it's pretty much been debunked in a lot of the mm. studies that the better outcomes are when the party's actually working with each other to benefit both parties. Especially when you're kind of buying a service, right? Like if you go in and you focus 100% on price and you've they've got to still deliver on a service and you're paying them for that service, 
you're basically paying them less. Mm. And are you going to get that service on the same standard as if you were a mm. full-paying customer? So you're basically kind of cutting your own lunch. And so, you know, you're paying, you know, 80% of the price, but you're only getting 80% of the service. That's right. And, mm. you know, I, I notice that a lot of the times when, you know, people focus on price so much, I got a good deal, I got a yeah. good deal. Well, yeah, maybe you haven't got a good deal because you're not actually getting the service that you actually paid for. Um, that's right. And so, I mean, so one's like a win-win, like that's the mm. philosophy, like let's come to a deal that you're winning, I'm winning, we're both happy and let's try to, you know, focus on that. On the other ones, look, let's just try to get whoever wins, I guess, whoever folds first. Yeah, that's right. Now, I've got to go back to something. This is mm. the elephant in the room mm. and I have to be the bravest person here and oh. ask you okay. <laughs> about Gosh. your own buyer's remorse. Oh, so... um I've got to be careful what I say. The sellers didn't leave the house ah, spick and span. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, and it is an old house built in 1893 mm. and it hadn't had a renovation for a very, very long time. But it was terrible. Yep. Mm. So we walked in the night before the renovation and the oven was unusable and... Um, the house was horrible and all the things that had been hidden by furniture became evident, holes mm. in floorboards and those sorts of things. Yep, yep. But I could not love it more. Like now, you know, a few years yep. down the track and with a big extension underway, um, it's a stunning house. Which is effectively, I mean, I remember that you buying, that was some time ago now. How many years ago is eight, it? Yeah, eight years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. So, and I remember that whole, um, and also you, you moved from a renovated home that you'd done. So, and I know that. My own experience, because mm. I've been through somewhat a similar experience, and it's really hard to go from something that you've done and is beautiful, even if it doesn't quite suit you any longer, and then moving to something you've got to start all over again. Yes. Um, yeah, that's that's always a challenge, and and th- it requires a lot of mental um, mental stamina, doesn't yeah. it? In in many ways, to to keep positive through that, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I, I mean, that's so common. To be honest, I'll call clients on day of settlement. You know, and so look, you know, congratulations. How do you feel? Feeling great. And you'd be amazed at how many times, like, they're actually really disappointed. They're actually really frustrated because the person who's living in the house has left garbage. They haven't mm. tidied up the front yard. Like, actually, sometimes the toilet has been really, and like, you know, it's just a you know, really, they, those things you can get rid of. You can, but they've just gone into, you know, a million dollars of debt and, you know, and they've just seen this horrible house that's not clean. Yeah. And they are, you know, it takes a while for them to calm down and it should be a really positive experience. That's right. And then this person's yeah. just been a bit lazy. Um, and, yeah, I can understand that 100% because it's it's so common. Do you know some, some it, when I first started in sales and I, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, vendors don't have to leave their houses nice at all. You know, they just basically move out, leave a tip. Well, mm. no, a dirty tip. Mm. You know, they can't leave all their junk and stuff there because they're meant to vacate the place, but they don't have to clean it. Whereas when you, you know, move into a rental, you know, yeah, it's got to be right. clean. That's right. And it's yeah. like, hang on, but I'm only spending a few hundred bucks a week versus, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and and the handover. There's actually an agent, and I have to try and find out who they are, who offer, uh, they actually, as part of their service to buyers, they actually go in there and do a full-on clean mm. to, to improve that um, that buyer, uh, I guess the handover. The um, buyer experience. Yeah, that's arrive. it. That's the word. Yeah, yeah nice. the buyer experience. Yeah, isn't that? Oh, and that's a recognition of that. that. Yeah. And yeah. We, uh, we actually got a council fine to after we'd been there for two weeks. <gasps> no. Because of all the rubbish in the back lane. It wasn't our rubbish. 
Mm. Better not put that on the recording. Why yeah. not? <laughs> but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that behaviour, that's I, not okay. I mean, if you are any agents listening, that to me sounds like an amazing little strategy, right? Because the person who's just bought the house, mm. some point in the future, they've got friends and they, they will start talking about how the house is beautiful. Oh, yeah. And then when they want to sell one day, yeah. oh, up pops that agent who left the house beautiful, you know, mm. and clean for them. So that's, that's a very forward-thinking strategy. I mean, I guess it probably... A lot of it would come down to as well is whether the seller feels like they got a good deal, you know, because, you know, I'm thinking back a few clients who have gone through that process and a lot of them they've negotiated really hard and they've got actually a very good deal on the property. And I feel like the other person's just feel like they've lost and they go, well, they got a good deal. I'm not tidying the place. Yeah. Um, and yeah. they've just kind of like, well, here's the keys. I'm not happy, um, you mm. know, and. So I guess that's what people do when they haven't felt like they've got a good deal. They probably start throwing their toys out of the pram. and Yeah, um, I think that's what happened with us because yeah. Veronica did a great job <laughs> and, uh, and didn't go to market and we mm. got, I think we did get a great deal. Mm. So there's, the, yes, well, it's true cost, isn't it? So, yeah, that's you might right. have saved a few dollars one hand and, yeah, yeah that's very interesting to way of looking at that's the, that's the big pie. It's making the pie bigger again, that's isn't right. it? So that's, that's right. bringing that, that in. Integrity, integrative aspect into what is typically a distributive mm. um, negotiation, yeah. but in reality we're human beings, and so we're going to we're going to make that pie bigger or smaller ourselves. That's right. Well, some and, people you know, are. There are lots of little things that can play into it to mm. make the deal sweeter for the other one. When we sold um, our house, we allowed the buyer to use our sa- selling photos mm. um, for their rental campaign. Yeah, and I see them pop up every now and again when the house is for rent. Yeah. So it cost me nothing. I'd already paid for it. Yeah. That's but, a really good point, actually, because mm. in our first episode with Simon, he talked about something called reciprocity. I couldn't mm. get that word you out. You still can't that, say it. <laughs> um, that episode, but I still can't. Um, and how the auctioneer would give a, a coffee and then as once you've received this free coffee or we receive something from someone, we automatically want to give something for someone else. Mm. And it doesn't have to be equal value. Yes. So, you know, a free coffee, $4 mm. um, versus bidding in an auction of $1.5 million, not really <laughs> even. Mm. And so, you know, just giving little small things away, little wins to someone, is that mm. a good tactic through negotiation? Oh, absolutely. So uh, that deal was done because we wanted an extra week on the settlement. Yep. So it cost me nothing. I'd paid for the photos mm-hmm. um, and we we got an extra week to settle. Yeah. It was just mm. something I could offer. And it would want it would cost them, you know, if they had to go and get their own photos. That's right. Yeah. So it was of value, value to, to them. them. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I guess for a lot of investors is that they have to, you know, keep their tenants happy for them to send tenants yeah. to kind of stay around. And really they want a win win outcome. But a lot of investors just say, look, if no one's going to pay me eight twenty, then next month next year I'm just going to pop it up to eight fifty. And they're just focusing on price. And really though, for a successful kind of investment, you need to keep your tenants happy. Um, otherwise, you know, you've got costs of them leaving and damage and things like that. So, you know, I guess how do you n- approach a negotiation when you want this win-win outcome of keeping happy tenants but also getting, you know, a fair price? Yeah. So I think it's about understanding the underlying motivations. So it's the difference between the stated position and the real interests that are in addition to that below the surface. In some instances, it might be, you know, someone's pride. They've been told, well, you'll have to yep. be able to rent this house for $1,000 a week and if you don't do it, that might be a personal embarrassment. Mm-hmm. So they might be pushing for something that isn't achievable in a current market. Um, in other instances, they might have underlying um, or the, the renter may have 
an underlying uh, motivation, which is I just uh, want to rent this for a few months because I'm renovating my home, but I don't want the landlord to know that. And so people aren't always negotiating from um, with just the position that they're telling you about. There mm-hmm. are always motivations underneath. Mm-hmm. And, and um, sometimes it's about, you know, in a workplace environment, I know I keep going back to things that aren't always property, but sometimes it's about reward or recognition or, or revenge or those sorts of things mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. In, a, uh, in a workplace or a commercial type of negotiation. But in the landlord-tenant um, relationship, there will always be things underneath those stated positions to explore. Which sort of comes back to one of your three original points where emotions aren't logical mm. and... Well, they trump. Emotions will always trump logic. Right. Okay. So emotions trump logic, which is really sad, isn't it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so therefore, sometimes though, when you're negotiating, you might be negotiating with another reasonable person who gets the big picture Mm. and, you know, understands that there's lots of different levers that you can pull. Um, But you also might find yourself negotiating with somebody who's so completely and utterly governed and ruled by the emotions and unconscious to that. What are some of the things as as a buyer or even as a seller, if you're dealing with a buyer that's like that, you know, how can you work through that to get to a good outcome? Are there times when it's impossible? A deal is uh, not possible if if you don't have that, you know, zone where you've got a willing seller and a willing buyer at that, that price. But there are ways to get around emotion. Um, sometimes, um, I mean, staying silent is a classic tactic in a negotiation. It allows you to get control of your emotion in the first instance. But sometimes people will fill up the empty space and bid against themselves in essence mm-hmm. I use it all the time. If you stay really quiet, people get really uncomfortable and they'll say something a bit silly mm. um, and quite often it's to your advantage. It's a classic mm. technique. So that helps if you've got somebody quite irrational. Sometimes um, in some circumstances you also might want to amp up to match them. So there's a technique where you can um, match their energy and then try and dull it down. So you go up on a spike. You go up on a spike with them, and then you slowly calm it down. And I hope often, they follow you. Uh, yeah, mm. often they will. Mm. So there are different tactics, and there's also word choice. So if you think about uh, like words with like modal verbs, like would, could, should, ought, compared to you know will definitely, and so you you can be offering, you can be proposing concessions. Um, using language really carefully. So if I were to do this, will you? So my offer is conditional, yours isn't. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, that works. And, and with an angry person, sometimes the angry person's motivation is to just be heard and acknowledged. And so the tactic might be to say, I see you're really frustrated. Tell me more. And if they can tell you what's going on for them and you get below that line of this is my stated position and that this is actually my interest and what's happening for me, that's where deals get made. Yeah, I mean, I read a really interesting book called Difficult Conversations Mm. or Crucial Conversations, I think it is. Um, And that talks a lot about that. It talks about building safety first, making sure the other person feels like they're in a, you know, safe environment and then you can start to kind of, you know, move forward with the conversation and, 
um, you know, that's kind of matching them and then allowing the, you know, and I think that's really powerful to, you know, before you even start trying to come up with solutions, just make sure everyone feels safe. Absolutely. And asking permission to broach a conversation is another way as well. Yeah, I'd like to give you some feedback. You mightn't like it, but. And once people have said yes, okay, they normally go, oh, all right, <laughs> you've, 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 you've got their permission to proceed. Yeah, and I mean, mm-hmm. silence is obviously um, a lot of with, you know, making decisions around property and things like that. We always want to, especially in their big decisions, I feel like we want to make them faster, you know, because it's like we, we, we know we're out of control here. We know we're feeling uncomfortable. We're feeling stressed. And so we just want to get this solved because we want to get out of this state of Pain. anxiety mm. And, mm. and things like that, which is the worst thing you can possibly do yeah. because you are acting emotionally. So, you know, I know that I, I can feel it when I'm in a situation where I'm getting pressured to, to commit to something that's actually quite big. Um, you know, I start freezing up. I start getting my adrenaline starts going. Yeah. Um and I can almost, I start getting, you know, you know, my head starts getting quite fuzzy. And I know what I'm feeling like that is I just need to say no and I need to, you know, walk away and then go sleep on it. And I think is that just something that what happens, I guess? Oh, yeah, it- yeah, absolutely. The Harvard program calls it going to the balcony. Okay. So you either literally or mentally take yourself off to the balcony. Yeah. Get some fresh air, relax, reconfigure your mindset. And uh, it's very helpful. There, there are some circumstances where that's not possible you know like for instance not necessarily in the current market so yeah there's a lot more leisurely <laughs> time around making your mind up but certainly in the last five years I keep banging on about you know the boom there were many times that people were under pressure to make quick decisions and and then you've got that that death rattle period of time between where you've stuck your neck out, you know, made the offer or whatever and then you're waiting for the response and is it going to work and all that sort of thing and that's when that that the hackles on the back of your neck rise and sweaty palms and you read the stress going gangbusters. So I, I guess, look, you look now and you look at people that overpay towards the end of the boom and, yeah, they've, you know, there's a bit of money knocked off the value of whatever they've bought now. They're, they're a bit behind. And and I guess there's always that you've got to pull back, don't you, and look at it and say, you know what, at the end of the day, the world's not going to end if you don't buy this property. Mm. And, you know, and so there's always bigger picture at stake and going to the balcony. But once again, it does, having techniques and the understanding of that is fantastic and even a name for it. So I want you to talk more about going to the balcony. But the discipline and the self-mastery to actually activate that and do it, that's another thing, isn't mm. it? Mm. So how, what are some tips for that? Uh, um, well, practice. Uh, I um, almost always will ask if there's a better price in, in you know, pretty much any day-to-day thing, not buying a hamburger or, you know, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> um, I'll do it for five seconds. Actually, just, <laughs> just getting used to the knockback because it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen mm. often. But if you can get used to the knockback, yep. you're much braver to do it actually when it really matters. All right. So it's it's practising, exercising Practice. the muscle. Yeah, it's exercising the muscle. I just, because I'm doing this big renovation at home and I'm the owner builder, so I order a lot of the materials, mm. I just saved um, $3,000 on what should have been a $7,000 order for steel just by doing the research, going to a few different companies, asking them if they would price match. One price was much cheaper. I changed the spec slightly because some other supplier told me about something. 
So changed the spec and the guys who were giving me the cheapest price couldn't deliver for a week, went back to my preferred supplier and said, they can do it for that. And you do it for that and deliver tomorrow, and they did. So $3,000 out of a possible seven. Yeah, you don't ask, you don't get. I mean, I've, yeah. as a kid, I mean, I've always been a bit, you know, over the top and always asked for discounts my whole life. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and it's, I, I, my view has changed a bit. I think, you know, I've always, I used to always think that price is what mattered 100%. And I'm like, I didn't value as long as I got a good deal. I was, that was just the way I thought about things. Now I'm kind of like, I, want a good deal, but I don't want that to sacrifice what I'm trying to buy, you know, whether that's a service or whether it's a product. So sometimes now I purposely won't ask for mm. a discount because I know that I'm actually going to get a worst outcome. You know, I find mm. that with negotiations sometimes, you know, people can sometimes go too far the other way. Yeah. I mean, a, a deal is not just about price. Yeah. So your deal is about your specification mm. and your time frame and your ongoing relationship with the other party. So I think we do focus on price a lot. But, um, you know, I would have paid more for the steel if I couldn't get it the next day. Mm. That, that's actually the bit that mattered more than the price. Yeah. But yeah. I got what I needed. Yeah. So that's, that, you know, just from a bit of personal learning here, I love this you know, we don't often get asked to discount our fee, but sometimes you do. And there's the whole value of proposition. And in a way, we haven't necessarily de demonstrated our value if people do think that it's too much. But there's some people like you that will always ask the question. So if someone like you came along to me and said, is that your best price? Can you do better? How should someone like me respond to that? So then I'd go back to your batner. Do you have lots of clients knocking on your door who need your services and you've got limited time? then you'd say, well, no, it's take it or leave it. But if you were just starting out and you needed the client, then you'd probably do it. Mm. Um, or if there were other circumstances uh, like this, you knew this person was an investor who would be buying multiple properties over a lot of time. So that's where the deal is mm. not just about the money. It's yeah. about everything else that's going on. Mm. But you would also need to look at what your alternatives are. Mm. And, and so then you assess every deal against that BATNA, against your other option. I love that. I mean, it's there's principles you can apply throughout your life. And I, of yeah. course, I'm, you know, looking at starting a renovation <laughs> at some point too. I'm thinking, oh, I love this. I, I'm like, can you come and project money to mine? <laughs> <laughs> um, negotiation, if, you're, if, you, if you are, feel like you need to go walk to the balcony, which was one of your tactics, um, should you always trust your gut? You know, so if your gut is and your emotions are kicking off and you get all these kind of feelings in your gut, a lot of people say, oh, well, that means that you're right. You know, you should always trust your gut. But is your gut always right or, you know, should you read into it a lot? <laughs> yeah, so the Trump book, The Art of the Deal, which he apparently wrote but didn't really read, I write, I hear. Um, <laughs> I've, uh, there's not much in that book that I like or adhere to, but there's one phrase that I find quite fascinating, which I agree with, which he says something like, um, I do enough research so that I can trust my gut. Mm. So uh. trusting your gut without the background research is a bit foolish. But if you've done the research, um, then I trust the gut, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because the trust, I mean, the gut's really just trying to prepare you. For, you know, it knows it's a fearful situation. So it's just subconsciously, it's just, you know, setting off, you know, it's actually quite, you know, actually things in your gut, isn't it? It actually does yeah. mentally and then it goes to your brain. And so there's a whole neuroscience around it. Um, but yeah. it's not always a bad thing. You know, so if you are feeling anxiety and I'm feeling out of control, it may just be your brain's just, you know, preparing you for battle, but it, it might actually still be a good decision. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. 
Interesting. Yeah, instinct. And that's something different to emotion, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, you, you see that in children. Children instinctively trust some adults more than other adults. Mm. You think, what's that, what's that about? That's something in the biology. So I think gut plays a role in negotiation for sure. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Fiona, I'm hoping that you've brought a Dumbo along to talk to us about. We can all learn what not to do from these stories. So have you got something to tell us? Mm, I've got a cracking story. This is something that happened to me. Uh, We were selling a holiday house up the coast. Do you remember this story? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we um, agreed to sell it to the next door neighbour who wanted to develop both blocks. He Mm -hmm. was a builder. So um, we exchanged contracts. He said he was selling another property and could he just pay a 5% deposit? We knew the guy. We'd socialised with him. Yes, agreed to that. Came time to settle and he couldn't complete. So he said, oh, I'm just still, you know, waiting for the finance to come in. Uh, this went on for months and months and months. We gave a notice to complete, I think, about 15 times. Um, and we waited and we waited and he started to tell us that he had a bit of a problem with the broker. He couldn't contact his broker anymore. So then he couldn't get the finance and we're saying go to another broker if you've got the, uh, fun- you know, if you've had it approved mm. once, you'll get it approved again. No, it can only go to this broker. Uh, the final straw came where we got the truth, which was the broker was his cousin and they'd falsified income statements and the broker was bankrupt and had gone into hiding. So the fellow we were selling to couldn't get finance because he hadn't done it legitimately. Yeah. So then we ended up keeping the 5% deposit, which didn't cover the legal costs because it had been strung on for Mm. six months. Uh he went bankrupt, um, we lost money. So it was just terrible, terrible deal. So the learning is be very careful if you're negotiating with somebody that you know because you might have scales on the eyes. Uh, be very careful about only taking 5%. Uh, and, you know, on his part, get your finances organised and don't do illegal stuff. Wow, great Dumbos. And I always love it when there's a personal story. Mm. A few episodes back I gave a personal story (laughs) as a Dumbo. Um, That was episode 21 with Kieran Schweighofer, I think I got his name. Anyway, that was uh, all about Airbnb and it was actually another story about a weekender as it turns out. Um, So thank you for sharing that. And it is interesting because, you know, a lot of people ask for a 5% deposit and there's certainly there are – you know, some lawyers will just flatly refuse. Others will accept with certain, um, you know, clauses and all the rest of it. And we did also an episode, uh, I can't remember which episode it was, where we did Australia's most famous property dumbo. And that's all about what happens or what can happen if you fail to complete. But obviously, if you sell to somebody who doesn't complete and goes bankrupt, mm. you've got nowhere to go, have mm. you, to get the rest of your 10%? Well, we had, uh, we have a ongoing court judgment um, against him for the other 5% and all of our legal fees. Mm. And 
we ended up selling it for less. So, you know, under yeah. the contract, he owed us that as well. But yeah. that I, money's gone. We won't see that money. I mean, the hard part here is that, you know, as soon as you start murking the waters with negotiating with someone you know, you start bringing in kind of, you know, you want to help the person. Yeah. And really in this transaction, if they didn't settle at the end of the six weeks, really you should have noticed to settle and gave them one more and then basically took their deposit, which you probably would have done. Mm. But you probably gave this person a bit more time, yep. started listening. Yeah. You had a actually, you knew, they probably had each other's phone numbers, which isn't really what should happen mm. in a transaction. Well, there but, was no agent involved. So it's exactly, it's, yeah. it was exactly that. All the all the don't do's in a negotiation, well, we did them. Wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And but, I imagine it seemed so easy at the time. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> the beginning of it we all. talked about it for years mm. over, you know, barbecues up there. and Yeah. I see this so often. Um, you know, I mean, even just two weeks ago, a new client called me up and, you know, you start it, as soon as you start trying to evolve more parties and trying to, like, for example, brothers and sisters trying to buy or two mates trying to buy mm. or I'm trying to buy, it, you know, a, a house that my neighbour wants to sell. And it's all these kind of personal relationships start coming into the investment decision. And, you know, and then we start saying, why are you motivated just to make something because it's easy, Um, like buying off a friend or a family member or with a friend and my mates. And so you start outsourcing all these decisions and all of a sudden you're in this kind of mess where you're buying for not investment decisions. You're buying because, you know, just because it's easy. Um, Yeah. It's it's really a... um, uh, you know, especially in negotiation, yeah. I've got a client right now and they're trying to buy off their sister. Um, and I, it's, it's quite hard because the sister's wanting one price and they've gone to two real estate agents and then they're using a mark, uh, like, an, like a, a RP data report uh, to set this <laughs> price. And then the door, and then the sister's negotiating and it's like, well, you know, who's getting a fairer deal mm. here and, you know, et cetera. So it would have been much easier for her just to sell that property on the market yes. and her to buy a complete other property. But um, you got it's fraught with danger negotiating with people that you know. Yeah. There's a concept called um, the decision rule. So it's like the meta decision, the decision about the decision. And so if you're negotiating with somebody that you know um, or even in other circumstances to actually decide um, up front how the decision will be made, Mm. Um, and so in that instance, will you get three valuations and take the average two or, or will you, you know, sell it at an auction and that party can bid or however it works, but to decide the, decide how the decision will happen before you start making yeah. the decision is the key to those sorts of situations. And obviously we didn't use, use it at the lake house, but. Yeah. I mean, it's happened very common in business, right? So a lot of business partnerships fall over, a lot of life partnerships fall over. Um, and a lot of that is comes down to because they haven't actually had those conversations, those difficult conversations up front. How are we going when to deal? When there's goodwill. Yeah. Mm. And when we're not, elephants aren't going wild. You know, like, <laughs> let's think about this right now. If you do X, Y, and Z, how will we deal with it? And, um, you know, a lot of that upfront thinking, that process, well, what happens when we get to now? Um, yeah, it, it's just crazy. That's what I feel like a lot of you know, business owners never even think about. Yeah, it's a really big deal in family businesses, actually. A fair bit of my work is around that. If you've got partners who've been partners for years or, you know, father and son or whatever, and how do you unpack that business when one person wants to leave or retire or sell their portion? Mm. Uh, and if those decisions about how that dissolution would happen, if they're not made up front, that's really hard. Yeah. You know what? That is such great advice, Fiona. I just feel like we could talk for 
hours. We can't though because we're going to run out of studio time. <laughs> but um, I think that sort of leads into what we should have for the, the Elephant Rider Boot Camp this week. And I think that's all around pre, um, you know, agreements. And certainly when you get married, you know, a prenup, a lot of people say, oh, that's a really negative thing to do, but it's actually a very positive thing to do. I mean, Chris and I effectively had a prenup, if you like, <laughs> before we did this podcast. We we sat down and worked out through some contingencies and discussed, well, what happens if this happens or that happens or or you want to get out or I want to get out or you get something out of it and I don't, or whatever. What are the what are the rules of engagement? So you, you call it the decision rule. And I think that's really practical. So the Elephant Rider Bootcamp for buyers in this episode is really about if you are going to do a deal with your friend or family member. And there are a lot of, you know, Gen Ys, Millennials, Gen Zs even now, looking at getting into property by or via a joint venture. And certainly it's a great way for many people to actually potentially buy first their first investment property, for instance. And I think that the 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 learning here is to actually go and get effectively the same as a shareholder agreement drawn up, um, you know, an ownership agreement drawn up. You can get, there's lawyers that can do it. There's mediators that can do it. I'm sure your business could probably do it, Fiona. We'll definitely put the link in the show notes because having that agreement in place before you go and commit to a property, exactly that, it sets up the exit strategy and the varying, um, you know, circumstances that come up. So that's really the the bootcamp for this week. Make sure if you're going to go in, in with anybody, even with your life partner. Why not? Actually work out what happens if we break up. I know it's a scary thing to talk about. No, it isn't. <laughs> well, it isn't because it's the reality is it's got a high probability of happening. And so what if we break up? What can we agree? What is a fair thing to agree while we still love each other? <laughs> um, or what if one of us dies? You know, what if one of us becomes incapacitated? Or what if one of us loses our job? Or, you know, actually prepare for these eventuality or not eventualities, prepare for these contingencies ahead of time will make the entire property ownership experience a hell of a lot more positive. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I agree 100% with that. I mean, a lot of young couples that I, I sit down with, you know, they'll come to the table potentially with not even, not everyone's in the exact same position. So someone might have the deposit, someone might have the income and they're going into this and, it, you know, it's early days in a relationship and, you know, it's all great to think about things now, but if the relationship does fall over, you need to have planned and made an agreement. You know, sometimes it doesn't matter from a legal point of view because of de facto relationships and, you know, the laws around that. But at least try to have those conversations up front. It gives people a lot more certainty. And if, you know, the relationship isn't going very well and you are, you know, going separate ways, you've got something to reference back to. Um, and you rather than, you know, all this kind of confusion and the what could actually cause the downfall of the relationship is that uncertainty. Mm. Um, the other thing as well is is with parents giving deposits to kids and grandparents, and it's very, very common nowadays that, you know, family want to help out, you know, younger generations to buy into the property market. But don't just take that money from your parents. Don't just take that money from grandparents and aunties without ever giving them some type of assurance that you actually are trying to will give that back to them and a, and a realistic time frame. Don't just assume oh, I'll pay you back back in a year's time. Give yourself a bit more time and, and allow you to pay it off, you know, a bit more flexibility because otherwise you're going to be overly stressed and they're going to want it, etc. So really think that through prior to actually just taking the money because, you know, the Christmas parties do come around and then all the conversations kick off and, uh, you know. I, you're I the black sheep. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and you don't want that negativity in your family for the sake of someone trying to do a good thing for you. No, and you also want transparency with other siblings as well. Those things are really important, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
Brilliant. Look, Fiona, that's been wonderful. I'm not sure if you expected the t- conversation to go down some of the paths that went <laughs> down um, and, and that's what I love about this podcast and we've had loads of learning from you and from your time. If listeners want to get in touch with you or find out more about you, what can they do? Uh, the best way to get in touch with me is my website, resolvingmatters.com.au or you can find me on LinkedIn as well. And we'll make sure that those links are available. For listeners, we want to hear what you want to know about and what you want to learn about. And if you want Fiona back because you want to ask specific questions, then send us an email. We've got a form on the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au. We really want to hear from you because we really want to help you. Please tune in for our next episode when we interview property market researcher and commentator Kylie Davis. Most recently, Kylie spent four years with CoreLogic as the head of property solutions marketing, where she really helped them make sense of the data so that readers can understand better what's really underlying all the data around the property market. Now, she's really interesting. She's a bit of a geek. She's also obviously a journalist, so her storytelling is amazing. She's done a lot of research into what makes agents tick, but also what buyers and sellers think of agents, and also has a really good understanding of the mistakes that buyers make and the ways in which they can use data and the media to make better decisions. That's all coming up next episode. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.